Hello and welcome to the Bike Karma Podcast. The show hopes to bring together all open-minded, bicycle-loving folk from all over the world with stories, interviews, and dubious humor. I'm your host, Tom Brown. If you're in the northern half of the world, I hope you're coping well with winter. This time we check out bicycles made of wood? Find out what happens to water bottles when it gets cold in the high desert with the founder of the North American Handmade Bicycle Show, and we try and comb out the differences between muses and the hopefully manageable nagging voices some people who work with bicycles hear inside their heads. I know you have a lot of great podcasts to listen to, and I really appreciate you coming along for the ride with me on this one. Let's roll out. A while back, I heard about a personality test based on chocolate. Those who preferred milk chocolate reminisced into the past. White chocolate eaters lived more in the moment, and people who preferred dark chocolate supposedly were said to be leaning and looking towards the future. Sometimes people only like one of the variations. I know some people who will not touch milk chocolate because of the dairy content. Others will not eat dark chocolate claiming to be super tasters who can't get past the bitterness. Some people turn their noses up at white chocolate saying it tastes too much like butter. Anybody who knows me though, in a pinch, in certain situations, I'd eat any chocolate. Even you know, the cheapest unlabeled chocolate that you can find. I like dark chocolate the best, but I'd rather have a high quality milk chocolate than a cheap dark chocolate. I enjoy white chocolate in limited quantities, but can't eat very much of it. The strong feelings you get when you ask someone what type of the three chocolates they prefer and why somehow cuts through to something in our nature that likes to pick sides. Rather than see things on a continuum, we see things as separate. The reality of the situation is that you can place those three chocolates on a continuum based upon amount of cocoa butter and amount of cocoa. In another dimension, you could also include dairy content. There's something fundamental in human nature that creates a boundary between each one, and we are drawn emotionally to invest into one of the rooms we have built around our choices. This is good for making decisions when you have to choose one or the other but in a way it makes things separate and divided in a way in which they really aren't. So what does this have to do with bicycles? This is going to be the hard transition. So how should I handle this transition as a smooth podcaster? Uh, jokey way? <laughs> Nothing. I just wanted to talk about chocolate. Now back to bike stuff. No, that doesn't really work. How about metaphysical, maybe Alan Watts style? The real you puts chocolate and sushi and cycling and zazen into little boxes. But the universe dumps them all back out again in a giant wiggle. Uh, that doesn't really work. Ooh, how about strategically? Like I'll pull a pincer move. So I'll distract you. That's, that's what I've been doing. I've been distracting you talking about chocolate. And I'm going to sneak around the back in a pincer style move. And then hit you with... Reynolds 531 is the best! Boom! And then run away. No. That's not going to work either. 
So here's where I was going with this. Frame materials create the same emotional responses that chocolates do, as beers do, as coffees do. And that response says more about what goes on inside the person than the actual preference that they've chosen. Look at steel, carbon, and aluminum, AKA aluminium for those friends in the UK. All are decent. In a pinch, a working bicycle is a working bicycle in the same way that any bed is better than a cement pad. The polarization that happens though when you ask people for their preference is profound. Some people strongly prefer carbon, taking to bashing the steel is real fans as stuck in the past and has-beens even before they fully articulate what it is that they prefer about carbon. There was once a roadie who told me life is too short to care about steel and other old technology. <laughs> a steel bike connoisseur may besmirch carbon riders as impulsive early adopters of throwaway consumables. Aluminum fans claim proven technology without the rust. Now you throw into that titanium, scandium, magnesium alloy, stainless steel and combinations of all the above and you have a real potential for a highly divisive subject. Hey, well, if you're still here, you may be a bit more open-minded. Maybe you have a few bikes. Maybe you like each one for different reasons. Maybe you'd even consider a bicycle made of, wait for it, wood. I recently talked to Max Samuelson from Woody Bicycles out of Cape May, New Jersey, the Builder's Ball in Boston, about his bikes that he builds out of wood. Okay, so I'm here again at the Builder's Ball, as you can probably hear. All right, why would you make a bike out of wood? What happened there? So there's a couple things. I made a bike out of wood because I'm a carpenter and I've always been a cyclist. So it's just a matter of time until the two worlds of me came together. And that happened in 2008, about 60 bikes ago. I build bikes out of wood because it's the best material to make a bike out of. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The best material to make the bike out of is wood? I mean, you're talking to a steel is real guy here. Okay, so make your case. Here you go. All Why right. is wood the best material and what kind of wood are you talking about? If you're going to take me on, you better have your game ready. Okay. <laughs> um, so it's the best material for a couple of reasons. It's beautiful. It's more customizable than many other materials, certainly more customizable than carbon. And the vibration dampening is better than any of the other materials. I can kind of break that down like in a nerdy long way if you want. No, I don't think nerdy long is cool, but okay, so let me just throw it to you the short way. Steel is real. Right. I love the fact that I can get a steel bike that's like years, years old. Yeah and be able to still refurb it and bring it back. It's that whole rallying against the throwaway culture. Okay. Give, give me the wood take on that. So, I mean, you make an awesome point. I mean, I'm, I'm a bicycle advocate more than I'm even a wood bike advocate. I just love them. And you're right, bikes are so well made and they're, so, they're such simple machines. Unless you do something stupid to it, it's gonna be around forever and that's a beautiful thing. 
these bikes are certainly a niche market, which is a good thing because I can only build like a couple a year, so it's not a problem. These are super durable as well. I've got bikes that I made all the way back in 2008 that are not only still working but showing no sign of decay or or wear i mean it's like anything else you take care of it it's going to last you a long time you don't take care of it and you're going to see that what is the ride of a wood bike like compared to that of a steel bike okay so that's a great question and that's a really hard question to answer in words, but I think I have a pretty good answer for it because I've been asked it a lot of times. So I would compare a wood bike to a wood staircase and a metal bike to a metal staircase. So if you that's go a up, beautiful answer as a teacher you. and as a podcaster, that's a great explanation. So if you go up a metal staircase, there's a little bit of noise, there's a little bit of vibration, but it gets you to the top just fine. Yeah. Same with the wood. I mean, it's going to be soft and quiet and it's gonna get you to the top with the same amount of effort. Another uh, kind of example of this is, well, it's really, it all comes down to the vibration there. So what we're talking about there is vibration and vibration dampening. So the steel is super dense and rigid and that vibration travels through it and that's why that happens. And a way I like to explain this is you compare the ringing of a church bell. So some object strikes a church bell and it vibrates so aggressively that it carries that vibration for a long period of time and it makes such a loud noise that you can tell the whole village, you know, here we are over here. Take a sledgehammer and you hit a tree with it and you just hear a knock or a thump. And that's because the wood has that ability to absorb that vibration, to dampen that vibration. And you get the same thing when you ride the wood bike. Gets you to point A, from point A to point B. It's not, you know, it's not soft, it's not um, pliable but it does have these vibration dampening characteristics. So it's a smoother, softer ride than a lot of your metal and carbon bikes. What kind of wood do you use? So the wood depends on you know the purpose of the build, the bike I'm building. Am I trying to build something super lightweight? Am I trying to build something you know custom to order? I'm going to give you a little bit of a longer answer to this, but you know generally I try to build with a domestic hardwood. I love them. They're beautiful. They have the strength and the weight properties that I'm looking for, and they're available. They're not endangered, stuff like that. Those are all good things. But at the same time, one of the first steps I'll do when I have a custom build with somebody is I'll just have a conversation with them. What are you looking for? What kind of bike are you looking for? Why are you coming to me? What's important to you? Where are you from? All these things. And part of the fun for me is to make this bike custom to that person, but I make a wood bike. So I'm not only making it custom to them for their fit and the shape and the speed and the performance, but also to like that person's personality and history and background and heritage and all this stuff. So, you know, I might make a bike out of a species of wood that's applicable to that person for, you know, any number of reasons. This is like Harry Potter wand stuff, man. <laughs> that's literally something I can do. It's, 
seems like you're kind of going back to the future a little bit, to the original Velocipede, say we yeah. would, yeah. and you are basically just following that up. There's some parts, obviously, that have to stay metal. Yeah. Where do you draw the line as the builder? Where do I draw the line with the materials? So the materials, every bike is wood, but it's not just wood. So I use metal everywhere where there's a component connection. And I do that intentionally so that I don't make something so custom that it's obsolete or impossible to use. So it's got a metal uh, head tube, seat tube, bottom bracket shell, and dropout. So everywhere where a component contacts the frame, that's a standard size and connection to any other bike. So you could take this bike, you go to the other side of the world, you go on a bike trip, you could have a part break and you could replace it off the shelf at a local bike shop. So I use metal because it's industry standard and it's really good at what it does for those component connections. I use carbon fiber everywhere where I need a lot of tensile strength because carbon fiber is uh, exceptional for that. But I use wood for the majority of the frame because that's what I use, it's beautiful, and all the other reasons I've already said. What could be more green and good for the environment than a human being riding a wooden bicycle down the street using <laughs> no fuel, burning calories, and made out of a piece of wood that came from like our area. They're totally beautiful. Where would people go if they want to check them out and learn more? If you're interested, you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Woody Bicycles. My website is woodybicycles.biz or just Google Woody Bicycles. I'm Max Samuelson and I hand make them in Cape May, New Jersey. I went bird watching down there when I was younger. So. In my younger wild days when I was a bird watcher. Young kids watching birds. That's what the kids do when they're wild and young. It's like the best place in the world to it's go like see birds. It's like the best place in the world to go see birds. <laughs> it's on the East Coast at least. Yeah. yeah. All right. Hey, it's been great talking to you and uh, thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Cool. So one of the great things about the internet is that you can join a community of people who like exactly the same things you do and you can push that knowledge and get knowledge from other people inside that little camp that you wouldn't normally get to associate with. The bad news is your new best buddy about Le Mans might live in Houston, Texas and you won't get to hang out or ride anytime soon. So what if you were a bicycle builder back in the day, a few years ago, what would you do? Well, Don Walker decided to start a show to get together all of the frame builders and bicycle builders in North America just to hang out for a few days. A few years later, it's grown up to thousands of people and it's called the North American Handmade Bicycle Show. Being crazy winter in the Northeast, I talked to Don about one of his experiences on a group ride, and then we talked about the actual bike show coming up in February. If you're anywhere near New England at this point, give it a try. It's a big bike party for anybody who loves bicycles. Check it out online. The only legitimate reason I've heard not to go to this is that you might want to buy a bicycle, and that could be problems especially if you already have too many. I've heard, I've heard some people have too many. I, I don't know anybody in particular who has too many bicycles. Well, kind of, maybe I do. Yeah, anyway, here's Don Walker. My bicycle story. Uh, let's see, just years and years ago, uh, when I was still young and 
thin and had a full head of hair and was reasonably fast on a bicycle. I was living in the high desert in Southern California, and we, uh, you know, had a group ride that, you know, ran out of the bike shop, the, the LBS, so to speak. And in the high desert, you know, people don't that aren't from there don't probably understand that it can actually freeze in the wintertime there. It actually gets very, very cold in the high desert. And this particular winter group ride, we were dual pace lining it. I had a bottle of water that was on my bike and in kind of an older bottle. And I, I don't recall what brand it was or anything. I went to take a sip and as I squeezed, the bottle cracked. Uh, it was so cold outside. And when I pulled off out of the, the pace line, because I was going to just, you know, chuck the bottle, saw a telephone pole coming up and pulled out and underhand lobbed the uh bottle at the telephone pole not only did it hit it but when it hit it it shattered like glass it was amazing to watch uh, everybody that was on the ride was all whoa did you see that kind of a thing and we talked about it for years afterwards yeah yeah it was, it was probably in the uh you know i'm thinking low 20s at least i love that story hi i'm don walker founder and president of the North American Handmade Bicycle Show and a frame builder for Don Walker Cycles. Uh, the show started in 2004. There was an online forum uh, called framebuilders at fred.org, but the fred was spelled P-H-R-E-D. Um, and we had discussed having a get-together because there was a lot of new builders that were on this forum. And everybody needed a little bit of guidance, you know. Uh, I wish that I'd had some more guidance when I was a young builder. So there was a lot of discussions going on about getting everybody together and Nothing ever happened, and one day I just kind of, you know, grabbed the bull by the horns and said, you know what, I guess I'll organize something and let's make it happen. From that point forward, that gave birth to the North American Handmade Bicycle Show. It uh, originally was a way for us to get together and help educate the, the new guys, the new builders. It kind of took on a life of its own. Here we are going into year number 14, and uh, well, to be honest, this is the longest tenure I've ever been at one job. You know, a frame builder really can't afford to take out an ad in Bicycling Magazine, but you know, a hundred frame builders, Bicycling Magazine shows up and reports on the, uh, the occasion. Yeah, the very first show had 23 exhibitors. Out of that, I believe there was 18 frame builders. We had a couple component manufacturers and a lug maker, and pretty low-key, it was in the grand ballroom of the Sheraton Brook Hollow Hotel in Houston, Texas, 2005. Uh, 2018, we are in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, at the Connecticut Convention Center, and I believe we are going to be somewhere over 140 exhibitors. What you can find at the North American Handmade Bicycle Show is not just bicycle frame builders and their wares. You can find the leading component companies on planet Earth. You got the big three, SRAM, Shimano. You got a, a lot of wheel manufacturers. There's road bikes, track bikes, cyclocross bikes, mountain bikes, tandems. If, you, if, if it's a bicycle, chances are it will be there.
will have all the major construction types. You'll have bamboo, you'll have hardwoods, you'll have titanium, steel, carbon fiber, probably be something else there that you know we haven't seen yet. Uh, you'll have all the different styles of joinery, TIG weld, you'll have lugs, you'll have carbon fiber uh, wrapped to, you know, tube to tube construction. It's crazy what you'll see there and you know the, the most amazing thing is is that you know this is the artisan movement uh, when it applies to bicycles. They are the most talented people on the planet when it comes to bicycles. There's something for everybody to see for sure. If you'd like more information, you can check out NAHBS, that's the acronym for North American Handmade Bicycle Show, NAHBS.com. You can buy your tickets there. There's something for everybody. Come on down, bring the kids. We're kid-friendly. The dates for the show are February 16th through the 18th, right downtown uh, Hartford, Connecticut, at the Connecticut Convention Center. We're so glad to have you out here. Oh, and we're, and, and we're thrilled to be here, finally. So, great. Thank you very much for doing the interview. And, oh, thank uh, you for having me. I appreciate it. So the idea of the muse in art and fashion is based on the nine daughters of Zeus, who were full of style and poise and ideas. They were said to speak through the great artist in ancient times. As they were the daughters of the king of the gods, they were full of beauty and passion. They exerted their influence on master artisans and were credited by the humbly thankful as personifications of the luck to have had been able to make something lovely. Later in history, mediocre poets and artists claimed visitations by their quote-unquote muses to evoke any type of connection to the divine mythology of inspiration. Usually, this was to mitigate the fact that their art was subpar. Overly complex poems about dead swans and uninspired paintings, these wannabes buffered their egos from criticism by both crediting and sometimes blaming a third party. Like an angel voice or a fairy, the muse had been demoted from a divine helping hand to a voice that made you kind of make something. At some point, the idea of a muse deflated so greatly, and the idea of helpful voices inside your head rose far beyond demonic possession and mental illness to enjoy some credibility that the two ideas began to overlap. Muses and internal dialogues started to share the same real estate. You could say the mythological muses had gotten the worst end of the deal. Like a Neil Gaiman novel, the mighty daughters of Zeus were now slumming it. As sad as that is for the daughters of Zeus, it probably is closer to the reality of the creative process. An artist spends some time with the materials, a chunk of clay, a blank canvas, a pile of found objects, and waits for the objects to speak to them, waiting for inspiration to hit. Sculptors especially talk about finding the form within the stone. So getting back to bicycles, if you own a shop, you have little time to indulge your visions. A customer brings in a bike and wants you to replace the fork, you need to do it quickly and efficiently. Sometimes a trusting customer gives you carte blanche to build something up for them, but even then the initial vision is theirs. With us bike hobbyists and more independent small-scale frame builders and other bicycle artisans, we have a bit less pressure and a bit more freedom to play. 
Like a found media artist who combines things together to make something cool, bike hobbyists can find a wheel set long removed from a bicycle hanging in a shed for years unused. To me, it's like finding a new color paint for a canvas. I start imagining a frame they could go on. It could be one in my own boneyard, boneyard is what we call our parts areas, or much to my wife's frustration, it may be one that I've seen for sale somewhere, or one that I will see for sale at the next swap meet I go to. I'm not sure if I'm proud or embarrassed to say I've sat with a bike part in my basement just listening to music, drinking a beverage, and letting my imagination wander. Sometimes, the eureka moment comes and a parts list scrolls through your mind. In your head, you see it all come together and hope you can locate all the bits and bobs you hope you still have. Other times, the bike hangs around for far too long. It goes stale. Maybe it gets pushed to the back of the storage area. Luckily, going back into your storage area after time and pulling at a bike that was way back there can reignite the passion you originally had when you first got it. Even better is when you pull a bike from way in the back of the pile and realize that the parts that you just picked up would bring it into place. I call these type of things bicycle puzzles. Sometimes the solution to the puzzle is making it rideable and donating it. Other times it's to build it up based on some crazy inspiration you have, regardless of the future resale value. And most difficult, at least for me, is realizing that the puzzle needs to be passed on to somebody else, and it's not a puzzle for you to solve. I bought this really cool custom low-ride cruiser. It was called the Banjo Bike. It was handmade, but it needed some help, and I was really just stuck at like writer's block on what to do with it. I brought it to a swap meet just to show it off, and one of my fellow bicycle lovers lit up when he saw it, and I knew that this was the person that it had to go to next. He definitely had a visit from some bicycle muse. So if you make things at all, you can probably relate. The bikes in my garage say things like, Clean me. Ride me. Fix me next. Fix my shifter already. They aren't always sweet like the mythological muses of the arts. They don't have sweet voices all the time. Sometimes it's like, Did you or did you not order my new tires yet? Or, You know, the longer you wait to list me for sale, the longer till I find my forever home. Or, Take me to the scrapyard already. It's time. I could be a six-pack in my next life. Frames and parts also have voices. Even if it's one step above <laughs> metal illness, Bad pun. I'm not alone in thinking that my bicycle parts talk to me. So apart from the dishes nagging to be washed, the house asking to be painted, wheels asked to be trued, and bicycles asked to be tuned up. I was happy and surprised to hear Eric Weiss from the Providence Builders Ball tell me that his bikes also spoke to him. In the same way that two sailors out to sea find comfort when they both think they see land, I was happy to find somebody else who was hearing the same thing I was. I talked to him about it, and here's how he solved a bicycle puzzle of his own. Okay, so we're going along the bike path here in Providence, Rhode Island, and it's beautiful. And then he happens to say that his bikes also speak to him. <laughs> And I was like, holy crap, my bikes also speak to me and say things like, when am I going to get tuned up? And what is your vision for me, sir? All right, so just for the record, you're the crazy one. Okay. But not me. Okay. And um, here, here's the story. 
Uh, I'm particularly interested in small wheel bikes and folding bikes, not new ones either. And a friend had a pair of Raleigh RSWs, 16s, which are a really interesting Raleigh folding bike with uh, an interesting latch mechanism for the folding. And I said, yeah, I'll take them. And you know, they're both kind of in lousy shape, but I could probably turn, turn them into one really good bike. And I put them in my garage. And for four years, I did nothing with them. And every time I would walk in the garage, those bikes would sneer at me and say, oh, we know you're not doing anything with us. As they do. Yeah. You As they do. Loser. <laughs> so finally. Edgy. I, Your I, bike's uh, got edgy. Yeah, well, these, you know, British hooligans is what they are. Okay. And finally, I, um, I said, you know what? These need to find a better forever home because I'm obviously not going to do anything with these. So I brought them to Recycle a Bike in Providence, which is a community bike shop that does an earn a bike program. And I thought through Recycle a Bike, they'll find a better home. And <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> and so um, uh, the education coordinator from RAB, uh, they, they caught her eye and she is turning those two Raleigh RSW-16s into one killer vintage British folder. And I couldn't be happier about that. And what did that lady yell at you? Oh, she yelled, Circle A! Because she's riding a Circle A Cycles hand-built bike, and so am I. Made right here in Providence? Made in Providence, Rhode Island. I'm looking at the whole city right now from the waterfront. Oh, you're looking at part of it. Um, the working waterfront. We're actually in the city of East Providence right now on the East Bay bike path. And the section that we're on, we're looking directly across the harbor at Providence's working waterfront. There are these three giant turbines spinning in the wind, powering the facilities. And there's a big old ship tied up there, giant pile of asphalt, giant pile of gravel, giant pile of salt. Surrounded by beautiful water and marshes and lots of shorebirds. Yeah, it's an interesting setting because it's so industrial when you look in that direction. Then you turn your gaze, you know, 45 degrees yeah, and it's you like see a, the, it's the it's, Providence skyline. And it's you like see a missile attack. It looks <laughs> like the outline for missile attack when I was a kid. Listening back to that, I need to realize that I must clarify that I was actually talking about a video game named Missile Command. And in Missile Command, there were these little pixelated profiles of cities, which were actually based upon different cities from across the nation. One of which was Hartford, maybe one of them was Providence. But these city profiles were wicked iconic, even though they were just little pixelated lumps. And you, your goal in the video game was to protect these cities from the missile attack. It's crazy how much of a lasting impression 16K Atari 2600 games have had on my life. Sorry. It's, yeah. it's, it's our locally iconic skyline. It's world famous in Providence. Yes, it is. And then I turn just another 90, another 45 degrees and 40, 95, 90, 90 degrees. Somewhere in there, yeah. Turn another 90 degrees and I'm looking at this beautiful cove. Yeah, this lovely cove and there was a snowy egret flying by. There are bald eagles that live around here. Uh, some people call this a salt pond. It's kind of local vernacular for Rhode Island. Call it a salt pond. It's, um, you know, it's an estuary. Ecologically healthy salt marsh. If I was sucking on Adele's lemonade right now, I would 
have the full tour de force of Rhode Island. If you were sucking on Adele's right now and you happen to also be a crooked politician, you would be an official Rhode Islander today. Come on, we all love Buddy. <laughs> Everyone loves Buddy. <laughs> you can you can fold that one up and put it away. Well, you can we do, don't want to hear it. You could do a lot worse on a biking holiday than coming to uh, Rhode Island. This has been a beautiful ride today. Well, next time you come, we'll do one of our other amazing bike paths. All right, thanks. Well, that's it for another episode of Bike Karma. As always, we'd like to thank Keller Glass and the band Mobjack for our opening and closing theme music. Check them out at mobjackmusic.com. Thanks to Eric Weiss, Don Walker, and Max Samuelson from Woody Bikes. A big thank you to everyone interacting on social media, especially Matt Witter, who knows good tubing when he sees it. And new followers on Facebook, hello to the great continent of Africa. Thanks especially to Mechanical David, More Movie, Joel Whitwell, PBG93149D4, and Ruddleman2002 for following on Podbean. Thanks to DCC for the great review on iTunes. Appreciate it. The best thing you can do for this show is hit like if you liked it. Follow and share with your friends, leave us a review on iTunes or anywhere else, and maybe just get one person in Greenland to listen to the show, please. Giant thanks to our 11,000 plus downloaders and our listeners in all 50 states and over 50 countries. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Free cat logo stickers are available just for asking. On the next episode, maybe you. Email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com or DM me on any of the social media if you have a story that you think might fit on the show. Thanks to everyone waiting patiently in the queue. We are a commercial-free labor of love, but if you make a product that we love or your name is Oprah, give us a call. The Bike Karma Project and Podcast are the intellectual property of T. Brown, including the awesome cat logo drawn by my daughter. All rights are reserved and asserted. No matter how many miles you've gone or how experienced a rider you are, I want to keep all the listeners I got. So remember, every time before you go for a ride, do your ABC quick check. And until next time, keep, keep it, it wheel. wheel. I feel like I'm